Welcome, friends, to another week of the radio program called Studio 2. I am one of your hosts, Avi wolfman Errant. And I'm Cherry Gregg, also one of your hosts. Avi, I like that you're bringing so much cheer into today's show. A warmth. Yeah, that warmth. warmth. I like that. I appreciate that. That's and, what I was going for. Yeah, I, I received, received. <laughs> and um, and I, we kind of need that because yeah. we're going to talk about something today that could cause some people, it, it can get a little sticky for some folks, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't because it's part of life. We're going to talk about um, funeral planning mm-hmm. a little bit um, with Isabel Knight. She is a death doula who is president of the National Home Funeral Alliance. And then we're also going to dig into green burials. Yeah. Something I had never heard of until a few weeks ago when we talked about a bill in Delaware that has a lot of support to bring green burials to the first state. Yeah. My disclaimer for this conversation mm-hmm. is that I really struggle to say the word burial. Yeah. Did you I know hear it's me struggling? More, I think it's more burial, really. Burial. That's what it should be. But I struggle with that. So I just go with burial. So if you guys could bear with me. As I just say, burial over and over and over, and over, and over again. again. They're yeah. going to be like, it's burial. I know. Somebody's going to email. It's like a library, library thing. You know, it's just whatever. Mm-hmm. Something's going on back there in, in my vocal cords that makes burial come out. Speaking of vocal cords. Yes. We're learning about how whales vocalize. They have mm. this, this unusual voice box, it seems, that allows them to make sounds underwater. And there's a new study out of Denmark mm. that really peels back the curtain on how whales communicate. So we're going to talk about that at the end of the show with Dominique Didier, who's a Millersville University professor of aquatic biology and ichthyology and is kind of like our in-house I love that word Um, she's kind of our our in-house marine biologist and we love talking with her so we're going to talk about this new study yeah and if you have questions about green burial we'll talk about what it means what it could look like if you've ever been to one and want to share you know your experience attending a green funeral you can email us right now Studio 2 at WHYY.org, or you can call us and get on the line. It's 888-477-9499. But first, we're going to talk about some news headlines. And Avi, you go first. I go first. Okay. Um, So we had talked before in the show about how New Jersey has this kind of unusual practice of allowing counties to take the endorsed candidates from a party and group them on a ballot and put Mm. them in a prominent position. This happens in most New Jersey counties. Um, It has been challenged over the years, but perhaps not in this prominent of a way. Mm -hmm. New Jersey Senate candidate Andy Kim, who is running for the Democratic nomination for the seat that Robert Menendez has right Mm -hmm. now, has filed a federal lawsuit claiming that this way of drawing up ballots is unconstitutional. Hmm. Of course, this comes pretty uh, the election's coming up pretty fast so i'm not sure we're gonna Countdown get a r- resolution mm-hmm. on this before people cast their votes in this big democratic primary but it is an interesting and notable challenge to the way things have been done in new jersey for a long long time yeah and the plaintiffs in that case andy kim basically say these party line ballots act as an unconstitutional governmental thumb on the scale Mm. and all of this comes as Andy Kemp is up in the polls Um, he has a very grassroots campaign and took a double digit lead from the very beginning and this lawsuit will likely add to his momentum some believe because he's like taking on the quote system Um, of course you know his main challenger right now is Tammy Murphy the first lady that's important uh, of you know New Jersey Uh, but her campaign calls the lawsuit, a hypocritical stunt, 
because they right. claim that he's a D.C. politician who benefited from the same. Sure. You know, because well, he's, yeah. he's run for public office oh, before yeah, yeah, and, yeah, of yeah. course, been endorsed by, you know, party apparatus in, in the past. You mentioned that his main opponent, we think, is going mm-hmm. to is is her, his main challenge is going to be Tammy Murphy, who mm-hmm. is the current first lady. And right. I, I mentioned that I'm not sure the relief will come before the actual election. Yeah. But the point is being made through mm-hmm. the lawsuit, drawing this contrast between him, where he sort of framed himself as the outsider in this race, and Tammy Murphy, who is the current first lady mm-hmm. and, and obviously has a lot of relationships with Democratic politicians up and down the state, you know, um, through her own career and through her, her husband's career. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the contrast is being drawn whether or not Kim wins the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you have to note here. It's going to be interesting. I mean, because, you know, Demo- it's a Democratic state for the most part, New Jersey. Yeah. But it gets really contentious, that New Jersey politics. I'm very interested over there. They got it going on. Yeah. And speaking of politics, mm-hmm. um, some big news for voters in Delaware. A state court in there struck down early voting and excuse-free absentee ballots. And elected officials in the state, they're reacting strongly. And the Delaware State Attorney General has indicated that she may appeal that decision. Mm. Now, the Delaware State Legislature, just a little bit of the backstory here. They passed a law in 2019 that allowed 10 days of early voting. Two years later, in 2021, the lawmakers passed a law that essentially approved mail-in balloting in the state by allowing anyone to take part in absentee balloting. And in 2022, the Senate Minority Leader there, a Republican, filed this lawsuit challenging the laws as legislative overreach. They claim that the problem is they filed, they tried to change the election laws using um, a statute instead of filing for a constitutional amendment. And so the court agreed with this. And so right now there's no more early voting and there's no more excuse free absentee balloting in the first state. Yeah. Barring a successful appeal. Um, and like you said, right, this is a challenge to the state constitution. So mm-hmm. let's distinguish this from the first story we exactly. talked about. Yeah, F- this is yeah. not a federal constitution thing. This is a state constitution mm-hmm. thing. And in Delaware, the state constitution does have this language about sort of a general election being held on a single day. Mm-hmm. With maybe some exceptions, but the exceptions have to meet certain criteria. And what they're saying and what the judge is saying here is that the criteria for granting those exceptions has not been met in the case of these early voting and absentee voting laws in Delaware. So one way around it, right, is just change the Constitution. Get rid of that language in the Mm -hmm. state Constitution. Of course, it's hard to change a state Constitution. It is extremely hard. For good reasons. For good reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is, would Democrats be able to do that? They do have strong majorities in both chambers in the state, but do mm-hmm. they have big enough majorities in both chambers to make a constitutional amendment happen? If not, then this might just be the state of play. Yeah, and, and by the way, some Republicans have said that they would support early yeah. voting and they would support a constitutional amendment, and their big issue was that, hey, the rules are the rules. Right, you did it the wrong you way. You did it the wrong way, yeah. exactly. Um, so let's talk now about, so we, we did Jersey, right? We did mm-hmm. Delaware. Let's come back to Pennsylvania. Hey. Why not? Let's talk about SEPTA, which has a new board chair. Mm-hmm. He is the first black person and the first Democrat to oversee the transit agency. His name you might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. It's Ken Lawrence, who used to be the Montgomery County Board Commissioner. Um, this is a pretty interesting appointment, making him the board chair of SEPTA. Um, he takes over from Pat Dion Sr., who led the board for 24 years. Mm. Um, government, uh, you know, Republicans have generally controlled the SEPTA board. Um, and so this is an interesting appointment on several levels. Um, I might get into some of them in a second. 
But uh, just letting you know, Ken Lawrence is going yeah. to you know be the head honcho at SEPTA at a very critical time for SEPTA. Yeah, because they're you're facing some tough times. They're going off that economic cliff. We yeah. all talked about that deficit of 240 million going to be lurking around the corner. They're looking at potential service cuts and fare increases. By the way. Ken Lawrence, very good friends with Josh Shapiro, That's you know, what I was for mention. yeah, yes. and yes. and he's going to have to navigate getting uh, things passed through the system, uh, budget priorities for Governor Shapiro. He's going to have to navigate yeah. that. He's going to have to raise the money and fill this deficit. I mentioned Ken Lawrence yeah. was very recently the Montgomery County Board Commissioner. Who else held that title? Mm-hmm. Two jo- and two. Josh Shapiro, um, <laughs> who's the current governor of Pennsylvania, and so there's clearly a relationship there. Mm-hmm. And Josh Shapiro has proposed putting in more state money mm-hmm. for SEPTA and other regional transit agencies in his current proposed budget. But he has also said that he is hoping the local governments, in this case the five counties that SEPTA serves, Philadelphia and the Four Collar Counties, will put more local money toward mm-hmm. maintaining, expanding, improving SEPTA. And I think this is the type of appointment that can, you know, what's the best way to put this? Get, get those conversations started, mm-hmm. right? Because this is someone who understands county politics. Montgomery County is the biggest of the collar counties. And he knows how to work across the aisle. And, and he knows how to done. work. So it's an, it's, it's an interesting appointment at a critical time on many levels. And we'll see what this means for SEPTA as they enter a really, really important year. Yeah, and I want to wedge in one last story. Wedge it in. Um, this past weekend was huge for the more than 50 million fans of The Walking Dead of which I'm included. Um, <laughs> the long-awaited sixth spinoff, The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live, premiered. It did not disappoint, but the coolest thing, it happens in Philadelphia. So the show happens in Philly. Yes. Post-apocalyptic Philly. Yes. Post-apocalyptic <laughs> so Philadelphia. The two of the main characters, Rick Grimes and his wife, Michonne, they're brought back together in this series, and they... They they ha- they go bl- to blow. I won't give spoilers, okay. but it happens right here. You in don't Philadelphia. Have to worry about me. I don't care about the. Um, the you know, their Rick has been kidnapped. He's forced to join this army, and they run <laughs> Philadelphia. And this is it's an underground city. They make reference. Philly's to the, underground. Now? Yeah, it's like an underground secret city oh. of humans, h- tens of thousands of humans that oh, are fighting off. They're hiding, the and there's only like uh. three cities in the whole country that are still viable and oh philly God. is one of them we made it wow we're one we of the made threes? it in the, in the apocalypse <laughs> what are the three cities left <laughs> yes yeah, so anyway if you couldn't tell have never seen the walking dead barely i know it. what it's about i love it but you said there are 50 million fans of the show yes well, plus plus 50 plus million yes i will i will borrow a line <laughs> that was once applied to elvis 50 million fans of the walking dead can't be wrong nope it's good. Check them out on Sunday. So All anyway. right. So let's transition now to our newsmaker conversation. It's going to kick off really our whole middle segment today. And we're talking about death. We're going to say that up front. This mm-hmm. is a difficult topic for a lot of people. But the way a lot of Americans view death and end of life care is shifting, maybe for the better. We want to set the landscape for our conversation by talking about death positivity, which is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, one of the leading voices in this movement here in Philadelphia is Isabel Knight. She is the president of the National Funeral Alliance and works as a death doula. She joins us in the studio now to talk about demystifying death and getting more comfortable with a subject that a lot of us tend to shy away from. Isabel Knight, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, First, can you, uh, for folks who aren't familiar, describe what a death doula is and what they do? 
Sure. Um, I usually just describe it as an end of life guide. There's a lot of people who, I mean, a lot of people have heard of birth doulas before, and it's really a similar sort of advocate for, Mm. in the same way that a birth doula is an advocate for a birthing person, a death doula is an advocate for somebody who is dying. Um, And so we basically just help people go through that process because so many people have never, you know, gone through the process of supporting a loved one who might be dying before. Um, And there's plenty of things that happen during that process that might be very missing to people, Um, you know, getting a death certificate, um, trying to navigate planning a funeral. I mean, one thing I say to people is that planning a funeral is just as logistically difficult as planning a wedding. And often people take, you know, years to plan their wedding and they're not grieving. Absolutely. And and you're in already you're in a difficult emotional space and you're trying to do this very complicated thing. Um, And so what is your main advice to people um, about how to broach the subject because I'll admit this is a subject I tend to want to avoid. Right. I mean, one of the things that I try to do to encourage people to have the conversation is to think about um, particular like milestones. Like I, I encourage people to revisit first, obviously, to make a funeral plan and then revisit on a regular basis, um, especially when they move or when you have a kid or something like that. Um, but one of the things that I do is kind of just letting people understand how so many people come to me once they've already been through a death mm. and they realize how complicated it is to try mm. to plan a funeral and so many people sh- don't shop around like that's one of the main pieces of advice that I give to people is that when you are funeral planning make sure you're looking at various funeral homes because that's something that is quite difficult often to get access to the prices um, there's actually a current the regulator of the funeral industry the FTC the Federal Trade Commission is actually in the process of evaluating reevaluating the funeral rule which is the main um, legislation sort of governing the funeral space. And um, they are trying to evaluate whether or not they should require funeral homes to post their prices online, which would really um, increase access to funeral transparency and just help people be able to shop around in the first place. Mm. Um, So that's something that we don't have a response yet from that commission, but I'm very hopeful that they will make that a requirement. Mm. And I'll tell you this. uh, I had to plan a funeral. Um, One of my mom, my mom's sister passed away uh, years ago and she was just like, you got to take this one. Right. Right. And I'd never planned a funeral before. And it's a lot. And sort of like I'd never had this conversation with her that, you know, how do you sort of broach the conversation and why is it important to have these conversations? Because when, when you're not in the middle of, you know, end of life, you know, someone's sick or something, but just to have the conversation just as a regular, you know, regular times before you actually need to have it. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that I tell people is that the reason to do it early is because the once you start associating having the conversation with, you know, an emergency situation, basically, yeah. and like feeling like, oh, I don't want to talk about it yet because like I'm not dying yet. And having that conversation tied to the notion that having the conversation means that you're about to die, I think is very stressful for a lot of people. So I I mean, I'm 29. I have a funeral plan myself. Mm-hmm. I tell people that like you could get hit by a bus any day. Right. And so it's really a gift to the people who who are going to inevitably have to deal with your end-of-life plans anyway to plan something in advance just because that can be really stressful to go through in the moment as you're grieving, um, Mm. especially if there's an unexpected death. And you said a gift. Is that part of this whole death positivity movement, saying it as, you know, me giving you your plans, Mm -hmm. that's a gift to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, and this is like, I think a, part and parcel of us really having this notion of our value as human beings being tied to our like 
economic value. But mm. I think a lot of people, especially once they've retired, have this feeling of like, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to like, you know, burden people. And so that's something that I think that, you know, being able to say, look, this is a gift to your kids, to whoever might be coming after you, who is going to have to like, you know, take care of all the, you know, figuring out how to turn off your gas bill and everything in your house. Like that's something that is infinitely easier if you make a plan ahead of time. Because like I have a friend, for example, who was very good about planning and like, you know, had a very type A family. They were really on top of it, but they didn't plan, for example, where the funeral was actually going to be, like the venue. And the mom was religious, but the dad who had died was not religious. So then they ended up kind of having a fight about who, you know, where the funeral was going to be. So even like minor details, details like that that you might not think would be important could be something that people after you could potentially have conflict about and it would have been solved had they just had that you know five ten minute conversation yeah so what are the sort of buckets of things that you need to cover like is there a checklist i could go through with Mm -hmm. my loved ones and say i need to you know make a decision about disposition i need to make a decision about venue like what are the big checklist items that i kind of need to go through absolutely yeah so there's like the the kind of classic funeral planning questions like the venue and like who's going to be the the person planning everything and calling the venue and coordinating um there's questions around legacy so like one of the things that I hear a lot is around digital legacy is like, you know, I need access to this person's phone. You know, I need access to this person's email mm. because even if you don't have their actual passwords to things, for example, like to turn off the gas bill, um, you can do like, you know, forgot my password, but you have to still have access to their email. Oh. So that at least those two pieces of information, like the phone and the email, I always tell people are really critical. Um, and so there's the funeral, there's like the digital legacy piece. And then there's also a, a part that I think a lot of people don't think about as much, which is the vigil. So the vigil is sort mm-hmm. of like the period when you're actively dying. Um, and a lot of people, most people um, in surveys say that they would prefer to die at home, but a minority of people do. I think it's like 70% of people say that they would prefer to die at home, but only 30% do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so figuring out a plan A for, and if you had your ideal situation, like how would you like to curate the space if you're at home? Like, do you want to be facing the window? Like, do you want the energy to be really reverent or do you want it to be boisterous and like, you right. know, loud? Right. Um, and if you can't have your ideal situation, figuring out a plan B for if you do die in the hospital, which is like the more likely scenario, how can you maybe curate that space to be what you want it to be? Whether it's like bringing pictures from home yeah. or, you know, things like that. Right? Like bringing books, of home bringing, or that yeah. home feel. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Totally. A lot of things to think about. It was a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I just want to thank you for, for setting us up for the rest of this hour, Isabel. That's Isabel Knight, um, who is a, a president of the uh, National Funeral Alliance and works as a death doula. Just so much great information there. Uh, is there a place very quickly people can go to find more? Yeah, so you can find me at thedeathdesigner.com. Death That's my, uh, and then my organization is Home Funeral Alliance. Fantastic. Stick yep. with us, Studio That's Two. To come. Much more to come. Thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. Hello, I'm Avi wolf Benaric. Hello, I'm Cherry Gregg. Eco-friendly burials are growing in popularity. Close to 65% of Americans say they're interested in having a more sustainable funeral. But what exactly does that mean? What does it look like? What are the alternatives to the conventional Western burial practices that a lot of us are used to? 
Green burials. Apparently that's the answer, Cherry. It turns out there are a lot of options, and we're going to dig into all of them today. One is human composting, which some Delaware legislators want to bring to the first state. Aquamation, Mm. a.k.a. water cremation. Straightforward natural burials. The list goes on and on. Ed Bixby joins us in the studio right now. He's the founder of the Global Green Burial Alliance and owns many cemeteries around the country, including Steelmantown Cemetery, a natural burial preserve in Cape May County. Ed Bixby, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you very much for having me, Avi and Cherry. Yes, and of course, we want to hear your comments and questions. Friends, have you thought about a green burial? Have you been to a green funeral? Call us and share your thoughts. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. And so, Ed, we want to kind of center our conversation um, with some basics. Um, when we say green burial, What exactly does it mean? What exactly does it look like? Sure, absolutely. So typically, a a natural burial would would be in a place that did not allow uh, concrete vaults or outer burial containers, no embalmed bodies, uh, no upright monuments that are polished or set in concrete, biodegradable burial shrouds or containers. Uh, That doesn't mean that a conventional cemetery cannot allow these things as well. But that would be what the definition of, of what a natural burial would look like maybe in a burial preserve. And what are the options within that? You, you referenced a few of them, but what are some of the more popular green burial I guess, paths? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, years ago when I got started, typically people who came to me were highly educated in the sense that this was not something that was being, you know, being advertised. So they mm. were doing a lot of mm-hmm. research. And those individuals really wanted the purest form. They were looking for like a burial shroud, for instance, and they wanted to be buried out among the trees. But as uh, time went on and people experienced it, you know, loved ones of those individuals, the light bulb went off and they said, wow, I love this. This is what I would like. Uh, Maybe in that woodland preserve or maybe in their own family cemetery or neighborhood cemetery. So uh, now I would say 50% are shrouded or in like a, a linen or something, maybe even your favorite blanket. Mm. And the rest would be in something like a pine box or a wicker basket or something very simple. Uh, sometimes people even make their own uh, burial containers. And so let's walk us through the process because there's different, you're talking about, because there's different types. I mean, there's, we, we mentioned composting, we mentioned um, water cremation. Are those types of, of green burials as well? So those are greener options, and that's a very good point that you brought up. So the simplest form, you know, what we've been doing since the dawn of time is a natural burial. Yeah. It's really important to know that, you know, we've always done this. It's within ourselves, within our DNA to care for our loved ones in death. Now, though, uh, society has looked at greener options, uh, meaning like alkaline hydrolysis or terramation, different forms of disposition that maybe, maybe they don't want to be buried but they want to be a little more environmentally friendly. So these options have become very popular. I want to read an email now from Emily, who's a volunteer with Friends of Green Burial Pennsylvania. Emily says green burial is legal in all 50 states and always has been. This is a good distinction. Green burial just means no embalming, a biodegradable casket or shroud, and no concrete or steel vault grave liner. That's how everyone you know, used to be buried. That's what you were bringing up there, mm-hmm. Ed. Um, so what's new, I guess, is some of what we just talked about, these uh, these ideas of aquamation, um, human composting. How popular are those, would you say, compared to, I I guess, what I might call the traditional green burial? Right. So so they are gaining in popularity, but by no means are they anywhere remotely close to 
to being practiced as much as, let's say, a simple or a natural burial. Uh, they People are, are interested. They want to know the, uh, the process. They want to understand it. Uh, but, but the amount being done, unfortunately, is rather small. Yeah. I mean, you know, almost unrecognizable in the, in the full picture nationwide. But uh, people are, you know, becoming more educated as to what it is and want to know how to do it. And so I want to rewind back a little bit because um, when we were doing the research for this conversation, I was shocked to learn that, you know, this natural burial was the way people did it way back when. And that, you know, embalming people and using caskets and um, doing cremation is fairly new in the Western world. Explain some of the history of how we got to where we are now. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously it was only done one way prior to modern day or or the Civil War, for instance. That is really when embalming came into fashion. That's when families wanted to bring their loved ones back from the battlefield and not have them buried in faraway places. So uh, that's about when people started to look at traditional funeral service. And embalmers were, uh, you know, performing this task. And over time, they started to assume more of the roles that the families would have taken care of. And unfortunately, you know, over an extended period of time, people kind of became removed from the old way. Uh, we're just kind of taking something very old and making it new again. Mm. Mm. Um, and then cremation. I was stunned to find this out. I think the first cremation facility in the U.S. was like in the late 1800s in Washington, Pennsylvania. And yet it has ascended in popularity recently. I think even stunning experts in this field. Cremation, first of all, I guess maybe explain to people what it is, what what is defined as cremation, but why has it become so popular all of a sudden? So the rather unfortunate reason that cremations become unpopular is the fact that uh, the cost of a funeral can be quite expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people chose cremation because they didn't want the expense or the the fanfare of a traditional funeral, or maybe they didn't want to be embalmed. Funny enough, they wanted, to, they wanted something simpler. They just didn't realize it always existed. Right. So cremation came to the forefront because it was very affordable. Mm -hmm. So what happens, though, is with a cremation, you lose the celebration and the memorialization of your loved one. And even though economically it makes a lot of sense, it leaves people kind of unfulfilled with the actual event itself. So a lot of times they look at themselves and they, they still possess the cremated remains. They don't know exactly what to do with them. But because of the cost, that's why it really took off. And also because many people just did not want to leave that burden of expense mm. on their family. And cremation, to be clear, would not be considered, quote unquote, green. It wouldn't be considered green, but it's getting greener. You know, the okay. old retort that you mentioned of from the 1890s, you know, yeah. that's a big polluter. But but the ones that are created now are unbelievably efficient. And actually, I can actually say green. Now, they do use fossil fuels, so that's not so green. But the process and the... and and the filtration systems and what they emit out into the environment has completely changed. So it's mm. it's really very different. Than it, it has gotten be. greener. It's gotten v- very, yeah, much greener. Okay. Absolutely. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Edward Bixby, founder of Global Green Burial Alliance. He also owns many cemeteries around the country, including at Steelman Town Cemetery. It's a natural burial preserve in Cape May County. If you want to join the conversation, have you ever been to a green funeral Have you opted for a green burial? Call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to read this email from Deborah who says, I love, in all caps, that you are, one, normalizing end-of-life combos in general, and two, talking about green burial, gold star for introducing the concept of death 
doulas. Um, and maybe now is the perfect time to bring in uh, our call out, with his, which is Nancy Goldenberg, president and CEO of Laurel Hill East and East Falls and West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballot-Kenwood. Laurel Hill was the first cemetery in the United States to be designated a National Historic Landmark, and they now also offer natural burial. Nancy, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. And Nancy, uh, why did you guys go in this direction and describe your natural burial offerings? Well, we went in this direction, quite honestly, because our families were asking for it. Mm. Um, We have three green burial areas at Laurel Hill. Um, Our first uh, green burial area, which we call Nature Sanctuary, was actually started in 2008. Um, It's about an acre uh, site, and um, it was renovated in 2013, and in 2017 opened with sites designation. And Sites is uh, a rating system that's very similar to LEEDS for Like LEED certification, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But instead of buildings, sites applies to a site. Mm. And our site got uh, gold-designated sites. Um, and it is a meadow. It is a beautiful meadow that is transitioning over time to a um, climax forest. Mm. So each year we plant a few trees and over time it will be covered with trees and be forested. But right now it's um, a gorgeous meadow with all sorts of native flowers and it's, it's absolutely stunning. Nancy, can I ask you real quick, uh, do, can people have a natural burial and be placed in other parts of the cemetery or is everyone, yes. they can. Okay. So that you could choose to be in this one part, but you can also be naturally buried in, in other plots. If you own a lot, you can be buried green. You just mm. have to ask. Um, but we do have the nature sanctuary and two additional uh, green burial areas that we've recently added in the past couple of years because the demand has been so great. And how does this, you know, how does having a green burial sort of benefit the cemetery, so to speak? Because um, we've read that, you know, many times cemeteries will get filled up you know, with regard to space, and some will fall in disrepair. Does this having a natural burial, does that alleviate that problem? Well, it doesn't exactly alleviate that that issue. Um, that is an issue that I think uh, cemeteries around the country are facing as they fill up, because in particularly American culture, um, we are accustomed to buying burial rights forever. Mm. Um, In many other countries, you kind of recycle a grave after Mm. 50, 75 years. But that hasn't been the culture in the United States, uh, as opposed to European countries or South American countries. Mm. So uh, even though you, you know, your body um, will decompose over a number of years, um, that lot currently that you purchased that grave is still yours. Uh, Nancy, what do people tell you uh, about why they're choosing a natural burial? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And we, we 
we have seen that there is a heightened interest in the environment recently. Um, more and more people, I think, are becoming conscientious of climate change. Um, for example, even during last year's wildfires in Canada, um, and we felt the effects and saw the effects here in Philadelphia, we had a spike at that time mm-hmm. um, in, in sales. Um, I think people are also recognizing, while Ed did mention that cremation is um, getting more green, um, there is still, you know, it is still a fossil fuel. And I think people are recognizing more and more that maybe cremation isn't good for the environment as they, as good as they thought. Mm. Um, And I also think that, um, the country, as we've recently heard and read in the news, is growing more and more secular and more mindful of sustainability. Hmm. And this sense of um, returning to Earth, more of an environmental ethic and more of a feeling of um, a legacy that you're sort of that dust to dust, ashes to ashes, mm. is really a reminder that we're all made of Earth and we will return to Earth. So I, I think for those reasons, the sense yeah. of shared value and really being much more conscientious of um, sustainability practices yeah. is why we're seeing an increase. All right. Well, thank you, Nancy, um, for your time and for being on Studio 2. My pleasure. That was Nancy Goldenberg, president and CEO of Laurel Hill and East Falls and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and Balakinwood. Yeah, I want to bring Ed Bixby back in the conversation. Uh, can we talk a little bit about cost? Um, so there's we talked about this natural burial. We've talked about uh, human composting. We've talked about aquamation. Give us a sense of how the costs of these compare to um, stuff that, that people are more familiar with. Sure, absolutely. So uh, a traditional burial at the moment costs about uh, $15,000 nationally. Wow. Mm. So it's not it's not a cheap event. Yeah. Uh, mm. Natural burial, uh, some people want to believe that that means uh, inexpensive. It it doesn't quite mean inexpensive. It's certainly more economical than a traditional burial, but it's about half on average, and I can explain 7,500-ish. Yeah, Yeah. uh, even a little less at times, depending on the cemetery costs and and the funeral home costs. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take in in account that direct cremation can be as little as about $1,500. So that certainly, you know, is quite a bit in the sense that people would – Look at that and say that that makes a lot more sense for my finances. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's that's not happening. People are saying to themselves, "I want more, and I want more for my family. I want to leave a legacy." So they, uh, funny enough, with natural burial is bringing people back to the funeral industry, to the funeral home itself, and the cost really is of non-issue. Why uh, is it more expensive though than cremation? Well, because you have cemetery land involved. Mm-hmm. So a cemetery, you know, probably on average charges about 2500 to $3,000 for a plot. Uh, and then you have a funeral home. And they have services like uh, permitting, transportation, refrigeration, and casketing or shrouding. Mm-hmm. So you place the two together, and you're probably at about 6000 I would say. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to talk about family involvement into natural burial because when we talked about the history, uh, families used to take care of the bodies of their loved one at end of life. And then we kind of outsourced it to funeral directors and their staff. How does uh, green burial or natural burial change that? Absolutely, Cherry. That's the best question you could have asked. So the real true definition of natural burial to me is the family participation. 
uh, to care for your loved one as you've cared for them uh, in life, in death, is the final uh, act of kindness you can bestow upon them. And you're celebrating a life that was lived. So meaning that in modern day, uh, part of the grief that we experience is when our loved ones are taken away from us, and we cannot comprehend that. And then in a traditional service, we lose touch with the individual, we only see them at the burial, and they're kind of lost forever. In a natural burial, you're able to care for your loved one of every aspect of the entire ceremony, including like the death duel that you know was here today. So what's happening is it's bringing them closer to you, you're finding a greater f- f- acceptance of their passing, and you're able to then not be grief-stricken mm. and feel better about the actual event itself. Because at the end of the day, we cannot prevent the loss of our loved ones. So you would clean the body yourself, wrap them in the shroud. You as a you would do that for your loved one as a, uh, as a sign of love, an uh, act of love. Absolutely. You can be part of every part of the process. Of course, the funeral director is a large part to help with the permitting and transportation. You know, but in many states, you can yeah. do all that on your own. Yeah. Uh, so it's very cathartic. Um, so let's talk about, per- you mentioned permitting and states. I want to read this right. email now from Danny in Wilmington who says, the first ever Terramation conference mm. was held in Tacoma, Washington last week. This is legal in seven states. There's a lag between legislating and writing the regulations. The website recompose.life is a good place to start learning about it. That's what Danny says. Um, can you explain, because one of the things that's happening in Delaware is they're, they're trying to legalize the the um, the composting. Right. Um, how is that different the natural burial, and why does it? Why do we even need legislation around this at all? Like, why do we need state approval? Certainly. So, I mean, certainly, as from a licensing point of view, you know, the way the body's handled is quite important. So, they do need to understand the process because mm-hmm. it's a pretty lengthy process, and a lot of people don't understand that. So, the body is actually placed within organic material within a, a chamber that is oxygenated and heated and tumbled for an extended period of time. This is the composting. The composting yeah. part, yes. Yeah. And then at some point it's opened and the body is actually, the skeletal remains are disarticulated and it's tumbled more. Mm. And then at some point it's reopened again and the remains are removed and they're ground up in a cremulator and then replaced back into that organic material and then tumbled more and then the process is complete. Mm. So you have to understand that it's very different than a natural burial. Why would why would you choose that over natural? Uh, to be honest with you, it's just freedom of choice. Freedom uh, of choice. You know, when you look, when you explain or you're transparent of the process, a lot of people don't understand a lot that goes into it. So when they do hear that, they say, geez, why wouldn't I just recycle myself naturally? So they go back to natural burial itself. Yeah, and you, people do get concerned. They think putting a body just in the ground um, would it cause any type of contamination? Would it, um, you know, with things, if someone was ill, would it seep into the groundwater? Are there any things to be concerned about with regard to just natural, the old school way of just burying people? Uh, absolutely not. There is no record or, or, or instance of any type of groundwater contamination ever. And we did an extensive uh, research report with uh, the World Health Organization and uh, nothing, even in, in mass burial, uh, there's never been an instance of groundwater contamination. I want to read one more email from Dana, who uh, says, Friends Southwestern Burial Ground in Upper Darby was founded by Quakers in 1860 and offers shroud burial or burial with a biodegradable container for the body, such as a simple pine box. This was the traditional Mm -hmm. way of body disposition and is still legal and available. Um, Crystal Ball, do you think that 
natural burial, or if you lump it in with all the green burial options, has a chance to be as popular as cremation at some point? Standard burial practices? Where, where do you forecast this? Uh, absolutely. So I forecast it turning the tide on cremation because mm. the majority of all my customers and the people that I serve are cremation converts. They're not environmentalists. They believe in environmental concerns, but they believe more so in celebrating and, and, and doing this on their mm. own. So I believe probably within the next 15 years, the shift will be so dramatic, people won't be able to believe that it's probably half as much as all funeral service. We shall see. That's yeah. an interesting, uh, th- that would be quite a change in a short period of time. Absolutely. But you see that coming, Ed. Absolutely. I see it every day. What well, That is Ed Bixby, um, who we've been talking to about green burial. He's the founder of the Global Green Burial Alliance, also owns many cemeteries around the country, including Steelman Town Cemetery, a natural burial preserve in Cape May County. Ed, thanks for being with us today and walking us through all these options. Thank you very much. And coming up, fascinating new findings about how whales communicate. Well, whale be back. Whale be back. <laughs> whale be you back. You gotta land the joke. I whale gotta land be back. it. I did. No, no. <laughs> well, whale be back. Stick folks. with us. We'll be back. Who came to black have and the depth to take both of my ears and the little Welcome back <laughs> to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, let's dive into the ocean. Think about the deep blue sea, the salty mm. water smell, all the creatures swimming around. Can you hear that? <gasps> I think I can. I'm hearing it, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the sound of whales talking to each other underwater. Until now, there's been some confusion over how these giant mammals communicate. But a new study from Denmark offers some possible answers. Scientists there found and investigated voice boxes in a few young whales to parse out how whale songs actually work. Mm. We're curious. We wanted to know more, so we invited friend of the show, Dominique Didier, to dive into the topic. She is a professor at Millersville University and our aquatic biology expert. Dominique, so great to have you back on Studio Two. Thank you. It's great to be back. So, Dominique, this new study, fascinating. What exactly have scientists learned about the mechanics of how whales communicate? Well, it's really, this is a pretty exciting study. It makes sense that whales would have a voice box. They're mammals. They've evolved from the same ancestors that all mammals evolved from. But what nobody understood is that how could they make noise without being able to pass air across their voice box? While I'm talking to you, um, I'm making noises, um, vocalizing both on the um, expiration and inspiration as Mm. air is passing across my larynx. But whales are underwater. Mm. They have to come to the surface to breathe. But when they go down, where is that air coming from? And it turns out they have a really unique structure in their voice box. um, And they have a little extra air sac. And so what they can do is um, recycle the air. So they, you know, can pass it across the the tissues in their voice box to make the vocalization, and then they recycle it so that the air can pass back and forth, um, giving them their unique capability to make the the, the vocalizations um, that they use. 
so the air doesn't leave them it stays in them and mm. cycles back through I, I explain how that works mm -hmm. well while they're underwater you know yeah. they'll dive and so they've got air in their airways and of course the larynx is part of the the air passageways so they're um basically their nostrils are all closed off and their mouth is closed um but as the air well for most of them it's the um uh egress of flow the flow out across those tissues is when they can make the noise then they pass that air doesn't make noise when it comes back in across and goes into the sac and then comes back out and as it's going in and out of that extra sac um it's making um the 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 phone phonetics the noises mm. that they use for communication yeah. and when they come to the surface then of course they expire and breathe new air and so on but how they make the noise when they're underwater is by having this really unique voice box it's got a couple the structures are very detailed uh as an anatomist it was very exciting for me but i won't bore you with the <laughs> yes. details we, we, we feel the enthusiasm for i sure. love it yeah. i gotta ask you any ideas why or what they're communicating when they do make these very uh, unique sounds um well that's the million dollar question i would say we um, assume that they are communicating um, to each other important information. Perhaps the communication is related to mating. Um, it can be related to uh, feeding. Um, we know that they're very social animals, so they're very likely having a very rich um, uh, communication um, network of things that they express to mm -hmm. each other. Um, there's some suggestion there, um, identifying some of them, possibly identifying where um, food might be or mates are or communicating with their offspring. Um, it could be a whole host of things and things we've not even considered because we don't know everything about their biology. What are the next steps? And maybe you, that really covers it. But now that we have some better anatomical understanding of how this works, what pathways does that open up for scientists? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they um, admittedly, their sample size was small. Right. Um, it's kind of hard to get hold of a bunch of whales to cut them up and look at them. Um, but it does open the door for looking more broadly at, at other species of baleen whales. This, this is specific to baleen whales. Um, are, are the voice boxes the same in all of them? What they actually found is that the sperm whale... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, the humpback whale, my apologies, of the humpback whale that they looked at had an even different specialization than the other two whale species mm. that they examined. So we're finding a variety of specializations among those whales, which can point to different adaptations in different species. Um, also, by understanding the potential for the range of vocalizations in terms of the, um, the sounds that they can make, we can also understand better um, what impacts other noises in their environment might have, you know, yeah. noises that overlap with the same um, uh, frequencies that they are using for their communication. And, and that was going to be my question. I mean, there's a lot of noise on the water these days, given all the human activity on the water. How does that interfere or disrupt whale communication or, or impact it? Um, well, we do know it does have um, a serious impact, and there are a lot of noises um, underwater. From this study, one of the things they found um, was that uh, based on their anatomical examination, they were able to, you know, do some modeling and estimations of the range in which they can hear, or I'm sorry, vocalize. They also um, determined um, that 
physiologically, they can only vocalize within a somewhat narrow range of the ocean. So for example, they might be able to dive super deep, but as they go deeper below about 100 meters, they're not able to vocalize. So their vocalizations are limited to, let's say, a smaller cross-section of the ocean. It happens to completely overlap with where most of the anthropogenic activity is. Mm, like shipping. So this has yeah. some powerful implications for the ways in which um, those noises might be disrupting the communication that's going on between the whales. Yeah. I guess this is a half glass full take, but could it also potentially lead to some solutions? Uh, potentially, yeah. The more we understand about um, about what their vocalization range is, what it might mean to them, where they might be vocalizing, um, it does open the, the possibility for us to then adapt, hopefully, mm. um, and do things a little differently so that we can both enjoy the ocean and and harm each other less. Well, actually, the whales aren't harming us, but... Yeah, yeah. and so got to ask you this as we get ready to wrap up. I recently read that whale poo is extremely helpful because it helps repair the earth and whales are acting as the gardeners of the ocean. How important are whales to our planet? Oh my gosh. They're 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 crucial. All animals. We we're just this wonderful great biosphere and we need everything here together to live. Um the with the thing with the whale poos, that was so cool. It was. Um, <laughs> it makes it, it kind of you know, in a way, they were the scientists were super surprised that we're looking at this. But in a way, it makes sense. You think about the size of a humpback whale or a sperm whale. These things are huge. They're eating thousands of pounds of curl. Of course, they're going to have giant poos. Um, and yeah, all that stuff is nitrogenous waste, and it breaks down, and it provides nutrients for the lower levels Ooh. of food chain. Nutrients that, particularly nitrogen, that plants need. The phytoplankton needs that to grow. So um, really instrumental. In, in the ocean. Thank you to the whales. Thank you to Dominique Didier, Millersville University, Professor of General Biology, Aquatic Biology, and Ichthyology. Thanks for joining us on Studio Two. Oh, thanks for having me. From the Ruta to the Tuta, that yeah, is right. the... Can I just shout out Richard real <laughs> yes, quick in South Philly, who agrees with how I pronounce burial. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for that. And I've been saying burial, so we went back and forth. <laughs> tomato, that is tomato. for our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, Andreas Copes, Diana Martinez is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, we will talk with you tomorrow.